So, Father, we thank you for this time that we have in the Word of God. And I pray that you would just bless our time. And, Lord, is Job is a very uh, sobering book, a very heavy book at times. We can learn much from it. And that's what I pray that we do. That as Job is being ministered to, um, there was application and implication that was given um, that did not really uh, bring comfort to him at all. And Lord, as we discuss these things, give us wisdom and just pray, give us discernment that we may learn that you are still working in our trials and difficulties. And Lord, that there is hope. And Father, then how we can minister to others that are going through um, trials and, and tragedy. So Lord, bless this time and may it be a time of being encouraged and learning and, and being blessed and touched by you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know, I was thinking this afternoon that on Sunday morning, uh, just a couple Sundays ago, as we saw in chapter 11 of John's gospel, you recall that Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus had died. And, and Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. They were a family, uh, a brother and two sisters. And it tells us in chapter 11 that Jesus loved them twice, it, it's recorded. And we know that that Lazarus would die. He was in the tomb for four days when Jesus got to Bethany, and it seems so hopeless. And in that hopelessness, as we read about Martha and Mary, as they were ones that uh, were weeping and grieving and deep sorrow that was in their hearts because they lost their brother. But yet we see that Mary goes out and falls at the feet of Jesus, and she's worshiping him in that time of hopelessness. We know the rest of the story, as we read last week, that Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead as he would prove who he claimed that he was, and that is, I am the resurrection and the life. But I think about that in that time uh, of, of darkness and, and where there's death and sorrow of heart and, and a hurting heart, Mary was able to worship. We see that in another case in Acts chapter 16, when remember that Paul was in Philippi as he's on his second missionary journey and he's with Silas and they were beaten by rods they were thrown into prison and then at the midnight hour as they were black and blue and bleeding uh, they were praising God the jailer would hear the praises and the other uh, prisoners that were there and there was an earthquake and their bonds came off and of course uh, it was the Philippian jailer that got saved at that time but even in their, you know, midnight hour, they were able to worship the Lord. And what amazes me about Job here is we've looked at the first couple chapters, kind of our introduction to Job. Here is a man that is upright and, and has godly integrity. He is fearing God. He shuns evil. But yet what we see is a man that would go through tremendous loss. And he would lose his children. He would lose his wealth. Uh, he would lose his servants. He lost everything. And we know that as Job goes through that tremendous loss that happened all at once, even while one of the messengers were coming to say, Job, uh, you lost all of your, your wealth, the, the cattle. You've, you've lost your sheep. You've lost your oxen. You've lost you know, your donkeys and the servants that went with them, all of a sudden another messenger came along and said there was a great wind and you lost your children. And it all happened at once. And even in that, and in his mourning and deep grief, we see that Job does something so incredible to me, and that is he worshiped. 
And that's one of the lessons that the Lord has just kind of kept pressing upon me in our studies over the last couple of weeks and seeing Mary at the feet of Jesus in her time of grief and sorrow and hurting heart. As I think about Paul, and I was listening to this in our radio program yesterday about how Paul, as we're airing the book of Acts on Grace FM, and how he was worshiping the Lord at the midnight hour when he was hurting physically and is thrown in that prison. And I think about Job here, the deep loss that he's gone through. He's worshiping the Lord as he says that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And as I ponder that and think about that, I learn from that. That Lord, help me be one. That whether I'm going through loss or grief, or whether the situation seems very dark and it's the midnight hour, that Lord, I want to be one that worships. And we have reason to worship because our God is good and he's true and he's faithful and that he is working on our behalf. We may not see it when we're in the middle of that grief, but the Lord is working in eternity's perspectives. And that's what Job is going to discover as we get to the end of the book. But right now, he is one that's going through tremendous loss. And we saw in chapter 2 that then he is afflicted physically, has boils all over him. He's in great pain. And he goes out to the ash heap and he has sackcloth on and he's mourning and he's just sitting there. And his three friends come to him. And we were introduced to them last week as we ended our study, Eliphaz and, and Bildad. And so far, these three guys come and they just sit with Job, and I got to commend them for that. They didn't say anything for seven days. They just sit with him. And there are times when you and I have the opportunity to minister that is going to be sitting with those who are hurting, that we just sit with them, just be there. And oftentimes we think, oh, when somebody is hurting or somebody's grieving, that I got to say something right away. Not always. Sometimes it's just a matter of sitting there. Sometimes it's just a matter of ministering to them and being there for them. And that's what they did. But we're going to see that these three friends are going to begin to converse with Job. And this conversation is going to take place from chapter 3 to chapter 38. And we're going to see that um, this counsel that these three friends are going to give to Job are not going to bring comfort to him. So there's a lot to learn in this. And let's begin to look. We're going to see that Job now speaks. He has uh, gone through all this loss after seven days. We read after this in chapter 3 of Job, verse 1, that he opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job spoke and said, May the day perish on which I was born. And the night in which... It was said, a male child is conceived. In verse 4, may the day be darkness, and may God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. In verse 6, as for the night, may darkness seize it. And may it not rejoice among the days of the year. May it not come into the number of the months. And oh, may that night be barren. And may no joyful shout come into it. And may those curse it who curse the day. And those who are ready to arouse Leviathan. In verse 9, may the stars of its morning be dark. And may it look for light but have none. And not see the dawning of the day, because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide sorrow from my eyes. So after all this loss, after all this affliction, after sitting in the ash heap, he's still there, by the way, after seven days of silence, Job begins to speak about his situation. 
Now remember, Job has not cursed God. That's what Satan wanted him to do. In that heavenly scene that we saw in chapters 1 and 2, there is Job, you know, that um, doesn't know what's going on in that heavenly scene. But Satan is there before the throne of God. God says, have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless. He's upright. He shuns evil. He fears God. Yes, I have considered him. I've studied him. And Satan begins to mock God, in a sense, and saying, you've put a hedge of protection around him. That's the only reason why he worships you. That's the only reason why that he has faith in you and follows you. But you take that hand of protection away, that he's going to curse you to your face. And we have seen that that's the desire of Satan, and Job has not done that. He has worshipped the Lord. In chapter 2, when all those boils were all over him, he would still hold on to his integrity, and he would say, shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not uh, accept adversity? So even though Satan wanted him to curse God and his wife, and remember, his wife's going through tremendous grief as well, he would not do that. And he doesn't do it here, even though Satan wanted him to, but he does curse the day of his birth. And we see that Job's suffering is so intense that he wishes that he was never born, that he never was conceived. He curses the night of his conception. Now, here's the thing that we got to remember as we go through the book of Job. Now, remember that this is one of the poetic books that we go through of the Old Testament. And he's going to be using figures of speech. He's going to be using poetic language. He's going to be speaking from his feelings, from his emotions. So we need to be careful that we don't make theology out of everything that is said of Job. And that includes his three friends. And people who are hurting can feel this way that Job feels. Why was I ever born? And maybe perhaps you felt that way in your life. And I know that there are people that think, why was I ever born? And they're grieving, they're hurting so much. And you and I as Christians, here's the thing, we need to remember that the Lord knew us before we were ever, you know, formed in the womb, before we were ever created by Him. He knew us before the foundations of the world. And we need to remember, may we never forget this, that God does have a wonderful plan for us that he desires to, to have his glory be worked through us, even in the times of difficulties and loss and grief and hopelessness. And I think that when we are hurting, really deeply hurting, we can get so focused on the hopelessness of the present that we can forget about the blessing and the faithfulness of the Lord in the past and forget that he wants to work for us in the future. And sometimes it gets so bad, you know, we can have those kinds of emotions and feelings. And that's where we need to remember that the Lord loves us, and that He has a plan for us in eternity's perspectives, values, and views, and that the Lord's promises are true for us. And every single one of us, we do know people that perhaps have felt this way. I have talked to many in my years of ministry that have said to me, I wish I was never born. A lot of them say that because they don't know the Lord. They don't have an intimate relationship with the Lord. There's no real hope there. They don't know why they were created. There's a God that created them and loves them and has a plan for them and wants to save them and forgive them. 
But we have opportunity to minister to those people who feel that way, to give them the only hope that there is, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our hope, and He is our comfort. To, to know that He has a plan, and He wants to work all things out for good, as Romans chapter 8 says, for those who love Him, who are called according to His purposes. And may we keep that always tucked in our hearts, that, Lord, yes, it is difficult, and, and there's darkness. And notice here that he uses the word dark here. Did you notice that as I read these verses? Darkness. He uses the word night. And remember this, that Jesus is the light of the world. Remember that lesson from John chapter 8? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And he who believes in me, that they shall not walk in darkness, but walk in light. And as you go into John chapter 9, there is that man that was born blind, and, and there he is begging, and that was his life, and it would seem hopeless to him. And I just wonder, that man who was born blind, if he ever sat there and thought, why was I ever born? I'm blind, I'm begging, I have no real purpose in life, but Jesus comes along and gives him sight so he doesn't have to walk in darkness physically, literally. But you see, he would come to believe, didn't he, at the end of the chapter, as he began to worship the Lord, and there he could see truly as light came to him. And you and I as believers, we have that testimony that I was blind, but now I see. And remember that we don't have to stay in the darkness and in the night, that we have the light of the world in our hearts, and we have hope. And he's here to comfort us and to remind us that he is our future. You know the verse in Jeremiah 29, that I know my thoughts toward you, says the Lord. There are thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And if you seek me, you will find me. If you call upon me, I'll hear you. And it's in those times, just as the, the children of Judah were taken away captive, they were wondering, is there any future? Is there any hope for us? We're off in the captivity. And the Lord says, Jeremiah, write him a letter. Write them a letter and tell them this, that I am their future and their hope. And my thoughts towards them are thoughts of peace and not of evil. And as they call upon me, I will hear them. As they seek me, they will find me. And it's the promise that is given to you and to me. So here is he's just out of just the deep grief, grief and sorrow that he has, he's thinking in this way. And, and notice that in verse 8 too, another little side note, Leviathan is mentioned here, and it's interesting that it's going to be mentioned again here in the book of Job, but it's also mentioned uh, in Psalm 74 and Psalm 104. So what is a Leviathan? Well, what we can tell from Scripture, it was some kind of sea creature, some kind of sea monster of some sort. We don't know for sure, but it's some creature that existed back in this day, back uh, right, you know, during the times of the patriarchs. It's probably been extinct, but it's interesting to think about those things. But let's continue to read in verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, and why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Or why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? For now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep, and then I would have been at rest. With kings and counselors of the earth who built ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver, or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw the light? In verse 17, there the wicked seized from troubling, 
and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners rest together, and they do not hear the voice of the oppressor. The small and the greater there, and the servant is free from his master. So we see here, as, as Job continues, that he uh, wishes that he was born dead. Notice that there are four whys that I read in this section here in verses 11 through 19. Here is Job going, why, why, why? I think that perhaps a lot of us, that we've been through a situation, a difficult situation or circumstance, where we say, why, Lord? And we ask that question continually, Lord, why? Lord, why? Why, Lord? Why, Lord? Why? Perhaps every day for a long period of time. Lord, why did this happen? And so you can kind of relate to Job in that he's asking why, why? And you see, sometimes we can get so focused on the why. We get so focused on the why, and we forget to focus on who. We need to focus on the Lord. In other words, I know for me that when I am hurting and when I am going through difficulties or when I'm you know, going through a time of strain, that I begin to think, why, Lord? And we're going to see here that the Lord, at the end of the book, is going to speak, and he's going to speak of his sovereignty. He's going to answer Job, but he never directly tells him why. And there are things that happen to us on this side of eternity that we're not going to know why. Only God knows and whether we'll know on the other side of eternity, we'll find out. But we're not going to know on this side of eternity. We know that God is working, again, in eternity's plans and views. And, and, and when we get to heaven, Revelation chapter 19 tells us that we will all sing right before the second coming of Jesus Christ, that righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Righteous and true are your decisions. In other words, that we're going to be in heaven and we're going to say, right on, Lord, everything that you did. Your plans, your decisions, your judgments are right on and righteous. So I do know that from the scriptures. But we want to be careful that we don't try to be ones as these friends that we're going to see are going to have their patent answers. They're going to come and say, this is why, Job. This is why you've gone through this. And they're going to have some truth that we're going to see. And that's what makes Job a little bit challenging is that we're going to see some truth is going to be given but it's going to be wrong implication and wrong application given to Job's situation. And it's just going to be very black and white with these guys. Very legalistic, traditional, you know, I know, listen up, Job, all of this. And it doesn't bring him comfort. When we try to answer something that only God can answer, we're not helping people. When they're hurting, they're asking why. And as a pastor, I guess I get to ask that a lot. Why did this happen? Why did this happen? As I'm standing next to parents and they're told by the doctor is that her daughter is getting ready for surgery because she got in a car accident, you better say goodbye because she may not come out of that surgery alive. And they're going, why? Or as I stand on the bank of a river, with a father that's holding a four-year-old child that had drowned. And he's asking why. Or as I'm in a hospital bed, you know, room, and I'm with a family that's watching their loved one take a last breath, 
And they don't know why. They're asking, why did this happen? And I don't know why. But I can declare that God is with them and God is good. And God has a plan and he's the source of comfort. But I don't know why. And instead of focusing on the why, I want to take them to the who. And that is the Lord. And to bring them to the Lord, to his grace and compassion and comfort, the only truly that he can give, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, that our God is the God of comfort that can comfort us in all of our tribulations. So here is Job saying, why? Why is this happening? And in verse 13, just again, as we go through this, remember that there's going to be things that Job is going to be saying out of frustration, out of emotion. And he's going to be saying things that aren't supported by Scripture. So in verse 13, for now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep and then I would have been at rest. There are those that come along, some groups, and they use that verse, they'll pull it out of Job and try to support soul sleep. You know what soul sleep is. That when we die, our bodies sleep and then our souls, our spirits sleep until the rapture of the church, until the resurrection happens. So all those saints have died, you know, before us that they're in soul sleep right now. And they're not in heaven. And that won't take place until as Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 15, as he talks about the resurrection, and we shall not all sleep, but in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we all shall be changed. Now listen, soul sleep is not a doctrine of the Scripture. We know very, very clearly that Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. So when we lay somebody to rest, when I do a graveside at a funeral and we lower that person, their body rests until the resurrection. Their body sleeps, but not their soul. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Their spirit is with the Lord. And Paul makes that very clear. We can be sure of that. And a time's going to come. The resurrection is when our earthly bodies even as they're decayed, is going to be resurrected and we're going to have new heavenly bodies. That's what the resurrection is all about. It's a very incredible doctrine that's taught to us in the scripture. Just as Jesus bodily rose from the grave, from the tomb, as we'll talk about when we get to the end of John's gospel, and of course as we talk about on Easter. But he bodily rose from the grave, and we will get new heavenly bodies, but we go home to be with the Lord. And we see that throughout the scriptures. You know, even in the Old Testament, when Moses was told, to, Moses, do your last battle, and then I'm going to take you home to be with your brethren. We know that it is Paul, when he's writing to the book of, of uh, in the books of Philippians, when he was writing to that church, he was in prison, his first imprisonment in Rome, and he doesn't know if he's going to live or not. And so he's writing about that. He says, I'm between two straits, you know, uh, for me to die is to gain, because I get to go home and be with the Lord. He didn't say, for me to die is to soul sleep for, you know, 2,000 years. To stay here is better for you guys, but Paul talks about that. We know that Jesus would say to that thief on the cross, before the sun has set, what? You'll be with me in paradise. 
So don't let those who come along, they'll pull a verse like this out and they'll say, see, here's the doctrine of soul sleep and our soul sleeps until the resurrection. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord as we look at it. But again, Job is saying things out of emotions and that's what we got to be kind of discerning about as we go through the book of Job and, and carefully look at. It's like when you and I are overwhelmed with emotions, don't we say things that aren't biblically based? Sometimes we'll say, God doesn't love me. Well, he does love you. And that's why it's important that we keep giving the Word of God to people very gently and making proper application and bringing that comfort of God's Word. You see, that's what it's supposed to do is to bring comfort, edification, and exhortation as we do that, as it's applied in the right way. As we do that, you know, giving them the truth of God's Word. And sometimes, as I said last week, it takes a little while for our emotions to catch up with the Word of God but we can give it to them. And that'll help them grow in faith because faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans chapter 10. So Job hearing this struggle, just continuing to struggle in verse 20. Why is the light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul who long for death and it does not come and search for it more than hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they uh, can find the grave why, verse 23, is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? For my sign comes before I eat, and my groaning pour out like water. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, for trouble comes. And so we, we see that um, here Job is he speaking, and um, we see that uh, Job is he's saying, um, that, you know, why is light given to man? And whom has God hedged in? And my gro groanings pour out like water. And, and he's just expressing these things as, as he does. Now, there are those of the positive confession people. And it takes on kind of different forms. But the positive confession will say, don't speak words that are negative. Because there's literally power in those words. And if you speak those negative words, that's what's going to happen to you. Now, attitude is very important. And faith is very important. To have faith and speak those words of faith. But when we start to stretch it and apply it in a way that is not biblical to where if you say anything negative, ooh, that's going to happen to you. So you always got to speak things positive and name it and claim it and it'll happen. Because they believe there's literally power in words that come out of your mouth. And you see, that's foolishness. And yes, we are to speak faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. I understand that. And faith is we speak those words. But to say that if you say something negative, there's power in that word. And, and boy, bad things are going to happen because you said it. And I am so glad that that's not true because I have all kinds of bad things happen because I can be negative at times. Right? We can be. Just as Jacob. Remember Jacob in the book of Genesis? He loses his son Joseph as Joseph is sold into slavery. But remember that the brothers, you know, Jacob's sons come back and say, hey, your favorite son Joseph got killed by a wild animal. He thought he had lost Joseph, you know, to, to a wild animal. And, and so years go by. You know the story how Joseph eventually became the prime minister of Egypt. There's famine in the land. And so Jacob sends his sons, except for Benjamin, the youngest, 
who's actually the brother of Joseph. Remember Joseph and Benjamin born of Rachel. But Benjamin stays home. The rest of the brothers go to ask this man who has grain in Egypt, and that was Joseph. They didn't know it was Joseph, that he had been promoted to prime minister through the working of God and circumstances of God. So here come the brothers. They ask for grain, and so Joseph keeps Simeon. He says, do you have any other brothers? Yeah, Benjamin, the youngest, is at home. Well, next time you come for grain, you need to bring him. They go back to Jacob. They, talk, they say, hey, this man in Egypt kept Simeon. He says, we got to bring Benjamin. And, and Jacob, he says, Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And he wants to take Benjamin away. All these things work against me. Were they working against Jacob? No. God was working in a very marvelous and wonderful way. And at the end of the book of Genesis, it is Joseph that said, you guys meant evil for me, but God meant it for good. And I am so thankful for the compassion and for the grace and the patience and the long-suffering of my Lord when I can give a complaint or I can be negative and the Lord very gently but very, very much has to come along and remind me that I am working for good. Somehow, some way. And I can think that all these things are working against me when God is saying I'm working for good. So here is Job feeling these things. And, and it's interesting here. At the end of the chapter, he says, For these things I greatly feared has come upon me. So apparently, that he was afraid this, that this would happen. You know how that is. Any of us that are parents, don't we have fear sometimes for our kids that something will happen to them? I think we experience that in one degree or another. Or sometimes we can fear that I'm going to lose my job or, you know, my business is going to go under or my health is going to fail. We can go through life, can't we? And, and the things that we, you know, dread or fear, all of a sudden they begin to happen. And here's the thing. We know that the scripture says he hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. But we can become afraid. And the Lord constantly comes along and he says, don't be afraid. Because that fear can really grip us, can it? It can really hinder us. It can really paralyze us. And we become fearful. And the Lord comes along and gently reminds us that don't be afraid. He would say that to Abraham. Because Abraham, I'm your exceedingly great reward. And he would say that to Moses. And Moses would say to the people, don't be afraid, for see the salvation of the Lord. We know that he would say that to David. And he would say that to the great men of faith. Even Paul the Apostle in the New Testament, when he was in Corinth, he says, Paul, don't be afraid. No one's going to hurt you here in Corinth. And you have many people here, and I'm with you. And we do have the promise of his presence that he is with us. And we can be established in his promises that will help us from going through our journey and our life with the Lord just being full of fear. So he feared these things. And so chapter 4, we see that uh, the first of the counselors uh, begins to speak, and it's Eliphaz. Remember Eliphaz? We talked about him. He's probably the oldest. He is one that, as he's the oldest, 
He is very traditional. He is one that likes to speak on experience. And so Eliphaz the Timonite answered and said, If one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? But who can withhold himself from speaking? And surely you have instructed many, and you have strengthened weak hands. So Eliphaz now gives some advice. He, he feels as though that I've been quiet for a week. Now i got something to say. And he wants to encourage Job, but he doesn't. And we need to, as I said, that, that positive confession that there's power in words they believe. But we don't want to underestimate what words how can affect another person. And James talks about how the tongue, that six ounces of muscle in our mouth, can be like a fire and do a lot of destruction. You see, the words that we do speak can bring hurt or they can bring encouragement and help. We can build people up or we can tear people down, can't we? And that's why it's very important that we're wise and discerning in the things that we say to people, that we be quick to hear and slow to speak, as Proverbs says. And we want to speak the things of the Lord because we can really begin to tear people down and hurt people in the things that we say if we're not being careful in the words that we say to them, especially when they are hurting. And that's what Eliphaz starts blasting away here. And we read that in verse 4, Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have strengthened the feeble knees. But now it comes upon you, and you are weary. It touches you, and you are um, in, tr in trouble. And it's not that your reverence, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope. And remember how now whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen in those who plow iniquity and so trouble reap the same. Verse 9, by the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The old lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. So first, you know, he starts out kind of positive. Job, you've done some good things. You've helped others with your words and your advice, and it's easy to encourage others, but you need to follow your own advice. That's what he's really saying in, in verse 5. You need to follow your own advice. You need to apply to yourself what you tell others. And remember that right words spoken, as I said, at the right time with the right motive can help. It can be a comfort. But here's the thing that we need to always remember. If we desire to be a counselor or a comforter, we need not just, you know, start talking words when we don't know what the heart is. You see, we want to know the heart of the troubled soul. We want to be able to, yes, give them truth. That's so imperative. We want to give them correction at times. Yes, we want to do that. But I like what Warren Worsby said. He said, you don't heal a broken heart with logic. You heal a broken heart with love. And we need to always keep that in mind. We don't just heal a broken heart with logic. But as we're speaking with others, are we doing it with love? Do they see that you really care? Or are we ones that we're just going to show people what we know and how smart we are and I'm right and you need to listen to me and this would, you know, listen up and all of this. And that's what these guys are going to do. 
but do we really desire to, to tune in on their hearts? Do we really desire to touch their hearts and for us to show that love that we should be showing to them? We, we see that, that the reason, as he says, that you're going through these sufferings is because you're not innocent. Those who sin go through trials like this is what he says. And basically, that's what they're going to say for the next 34 chapters. In verse 7, we read that he says, you know, whoever perish being innocent is the upright ever cut off. Well, we know that that can happen. We're going to see when we get to Jesus' crucifixion that he was cut off, wasn't he? As he was crucified. And he was innocent, Jesus. Even the Pontius Pilate would cry out to the crowds that, why? Why do you want to crucify him? What has he done? I find no fault in him. Even Judas, the betrayer, said, I've betrayed innocent blood, and yet he was cut off. There have been those men and women of great faith throughout church history that have been martyred for faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and we see that the innocent is being cut off and perish even today in parts of the world, being martyred for their faith. So he's saying these things that, that as he continues to speak, and those who plow iniquity, verse 8, and sow trouble, reap the same. Now keep in mind in Galatians chapter 6 that it does tell us that don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. If you sow to the flesh, to the flesh you will reap corruption. Of the Spirit, you're going to reap the everlasting life. Now that's a truth that we have from God's Word. The problem is Eliphaz is saying these things giving the wrong implication and the wrong application to Job. The wrong implication. Job, you've sinned. You've done something wrong. And because of that, you're reaping what you did. And even though we see that he's desiring to give godly counsel, he's speaking from experience, verse 8. He is basing his counsel on experience. Even as I have seen, as he says. But he's not given the word of God. You see... We can have experience that confirm what the Word of God says, but we never want to take our experiences and we never want that to be the authority over the Word of God. The Word of God is our final authority. Are we clear on that? Because people will come along, we're going to see here, that he's going to have some kind of vision or revelation, and he's always based on experience, but it has to match up with the Word of God, and the Word of God is our final authority. So in verse 12, now a word was secretly brought to me, this, this spirit that he claims came to him. And my ear received a whisper of it, it disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night. When deep sleep falls on men, fear came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair on my body stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice saying, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If he puts no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error. Verse 19, How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before a moth. They are broken in pieces from the morning till evening. They perish forever with no one regarding. Does not their own excellence go away? They die even without wisdom. So here is, you know, he claims that a spirit came to him, a revelation. And we know that, that people can, you know, as, as the scripture says from Joel, in the last days that young men 
will dream dreams and old, old men will dream dreams and young men will see visions. But here's the thing. The experience cannot contradict what the Word of God says. And here he says that God is more righteous than men, yes. And, but he goes on and he says that if, Job, if you knew that, you know, that you sin, you need to confess it. You need to admit that you've sinned, Job. And that's what this revelation is. So now we go into chapter 5, and just quickly, just a few more minutes, and we'll be done. But call out now, is, is there anyone who will answer you? So Eliphaz in chapter 4 is offering his experience, and he's going to continue to do that. Of which of the holy ones will you turn? For wrath kills a foolish man, and envy slaps a simple one. I have seen the foolish taken root, and suddenly I cursed his dwelling place. His sons are far from safety, and they are crushed in the gate, and there is no deliverer because the hungry eat up his harvest, taking it even from the thorns, and a snare snatches their substance. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upwards. So, you know, here is he gives this observation. Who are you going to call out now, Job? Eliphaz saying, you know, Job, listen to reason. If you consult a holy wise person, they will tell you that sinners have, have prospered and, t- and take root, verse 3 but they end up losing all, kind of like you have, Job. Like he's describing Job's situation, and that must have really hurt Job to hear this. In a sense, what he's saying is, Job, you've lost everything because of you. And again, he's speaking from observation. Look at you. You're in the ash heap. Look at what you're doing. This must have what happened. This is what must have happened that you did something wrong. And the hurt that it must have caused Job to hear these words from from Eliphaz. And we read in in verse 8, that but as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noontime as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword and the mouth of the mighty from and from their hand. And so the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. You need to seek God, Job. You need to repent. You need to commit your cause to God is what he's saying. And then the justice of God will come to you. Just the hurting words, especially in verses 12 and 13. This applies to you, Job. And he mixes it in with truth here. He says that God's works are great and unsearchable and marvelous in verse 9. That's true, isn't it? But again, he's given wrong application and implication here. And then as we finish tonight, verse 17, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. For he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, 
but his hands make whole. He shall deliver you in six troubles. Yes, in seven no evil shall touch you. In famine he shall redeem you from death, in war and from power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue, and you shall not be afraid of destruction when it comes. And you shall laugh at destruction and famine, and you shall not be afraid of the beasts of the earth. In verse 23, for you shall have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is in in peace. You shall visit the dwelling and find nothing amiss. You shall also know that your descendants shall be many, your offspring like the grass of the earth. You shall come to the grave of full age as a sheaf of grain ripens in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear it and know for yourself. So here he talks about that God who brings this judgment to you will also bring healing. If you humble yourself and confess your sin, Job, if you confess your sin. He talks about the chastening of the Lord here in, in verse 17 and verse 18. The Lord does chasten, again, as he gives truth, those who he loves. And the Lord chastens us because we need that discipline, because he loves us, because he wants to get us on the right track. And I just want to say this about chastening, because sometimes people will mistake and chasten for judgment. They'll say, God is judging me. I want you to remember this, that Jesus took the judgment for you on Calvary's cross, all right? He took the judgment for you. But chastening, he disciplines us as his children because he loves us and he wants to bring correction to us. And here's the mindset about that. Sometimes we think, I don't like chastening. I, I don't think that. That's a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. All right? Because I'll tell you what is more scary than the chastening of the Lord is not being chastened. Do you really want to keep going in the direction you're going that you shouldn't be or not confessing or being convicted? We want the chastening of the Lord. We want the conviction of the Lord, don't we? Why? Because God is good. And he's loving and he wants the very best for you. So we welcome the chastening of the Lord. Lord, I need to be corrected. I need to be, you know, chastened. I need to be disciplined. Oh, I need all of that because you want to do the very best in my life that you have for me and because you love me. Just as parents, we chasten our children, don't we? We discipline them because we want them to grow up doing well and knowing right from wrong and, and being responsible and respectful so we are constantly doing that with our children just as the Lord is doing it with us because he wants us to be men and women that are godly in his witness and are doing well in the things of the Lord. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time in your word. We, we thank you so much for the blessing of going through a book that can be heavy, Lord, and the poetic language. And, but, Lord, as we gain these lessons and make application, we're thankful that you do um, have a plan for us and there's hope in you. And Lord, even when we're overwhelmed with the emotions that can fill our hearts and um, in the dark hours, when we become afraid, or Lord, when we're overwhelmed, that we thank you that you're with us. And Lord, that we can know that you have hope, true hope and comfort to give to us and that we can worship 
And Father, that you do have a plan. And your thoughts towards us are thoughts of peace. And you are our future and hope. Father, I do pray if there's anybody here tonight by chance that maybe you've never really committed your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe somebody watching on live stream right now. That the Lord loves you. And he took the judgment for you. We know that the Bible says that all of us have sinned. Even though Job is being called one who sinned and, and this is being told to him, the reality of Scripture is we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Has separated us from God. But Jesus, who was innocent, who was cut off, went to a cross. The reason that he went is to take care of the sin problem. He died for your sins. He went to the cross because without his atoning work of shedding his blood and redeeming us, there's no hope. There's no salvation. It only comes through Jesus who loves you so much. He was put into a grave after he died. When he was on that cross, he cried out, it is finished. I, I paid the price. I did the work. And I died for sinful humanity. I died for you specifically. And he proved what he did on Calvary's cross by rising from the grave and conquering sin and death. So if there's anybody here tonight that you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that he is your salvation and hope, and he is the one that will bring you forgiveness of sin and right relationship with the Father. And today is the day of salvation. Will you give your life to him? Surrender to him right now. He loves you. And it comes by faith. Believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and confessing that he rose from the grave. He's alive. And if that means anything to anyone here tonight, you pray right where you are. Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God who died for me. You are my hope. You are my Savior and Lord. Be my personal Savior and Lord. Forgive me of my sins. I confess that I am a sinner. I believe you died on Calvary's cross for me and that you were put into a tomb and you rose again and you're alive. And I now open the, the door of my heart for you to sit on the throne of my life and heart. And I know I can trust you all the days of my life. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. 